I started um, listening to the podcast, did that you know, for probably a couple of years before I connected with your investment counselor, Sarah. She did a great job of kind of holding my hand through the process. I'm probably one of the, the more needy uh, clients she worked with, but ended up buying my first property in 2011 in Atlanta. And then waited a couple, a few more years until my next one, but uh, 2014 purchased in Memphis. And so that's kind of where I am at this point. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur whose owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1150-1150. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and today we have a 10th episode show where we are going to talk about something of general, I'm not going to say interest, but super high importance. We are going to talk about shortcuts to happiness with our guest Tal Ben-Shahar. Great interview. I think you'll really enjoy this and get a lot out of it. You can kind of hack everything in life, right? You can hack happiness. So uh, why not do that? So we'll talk about that today. Our upcoming Meet the Masters event, we are totally sold out of VIP tickets but we still have a few. Actually, I can tell you we have exactly 10 seats left because two more just registered a moment ago. Hope you'll join us for that. It's uh, not far away. It's just the week after this one, or the weekend after this one, I should say. That, of course, is in Newport Beach, California. Beautiful place to have an event. So we have 10 seats left, general admission and elite admission only, no VIP left. Get your tickets for that at jasonhartman.com. And I had another talk with George Gilder today, one of our speakers uh, for Meet the Masters. And before we get to the interview on happiness, I just thought it would be worth spending eh, about three minutes with George. Uh, just uh, hearing a little bit about what he's planning to talk about at Meet the Masters. He's on a bit of a little mini speaking tour through uh, Caltech and doing some other engagements in Pasadena with various uh, science people. Then he's going to uh, come and speak at our event. And uh, so here is George Gilder. I am very excited about the upcoming Meet the Masters event, and of course we have George Gilder speaking. I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, many years ago on a Forbes investor cruise in Scandinavia and Russia, Then I've had him on the show several times. George, it's great to have you on the speaker roster at Meet the Masters. We really look forward to it. Tell us about the new economic theory that you're working on. It's really based on information theory. This is the theory that underlies the entire internet, uh, most of computer science. It originated with Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorem, uh, where he showed that every logical system is necessarily dependent on propositions that are not provable within the logical system. 
and Turing, Alan Turing extended it to computer science mm-hmm. and said that all computers are necessarily dependent on outside oracles mm-hmm. or, or essentially programmers. Claude Shannon extended it to the whole Internet, developed a definition of information that allowed you to calculate the capacity of any telecommunications channel. And Shannon also showed that his information theory was applicable to biology. And that's cued me to the idea that if it's applicable to all communications and computer technology, it certainly uh, was the foundation for an economics that had real scientific roots rather than the somewhat speculative Keynesian theories that tend to prevail today. Very interesting. This is a, a new economics based on information theory, and it's being explored at the London. I just got a communication from the London Mathematical Laboratory, which is an economics think tank in London, uh, very influential uh, with the Santa Fe Institute and other pursuits. And they're pursuing the information theory of economics, and they've discovered knowledge and power, which was my first book in that field. You have such a fascinating history. I mean, um, you know, as a speechwriter for, were you a speechwriter for Reagan, I believe? Sort of. I mean, I helped write his acceptance speech at the mm-hmm. Republican convention. And wealth and poverty was such a success at that point that I really couldn't afford to write speeches. I <laughs> had to give speeches. Yeah. And, yeah. and I gave hundreds of speeches for wealth and poverty and became President Reagan's most quoted living author. Mm-hmm. I remember that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's and, fantastic. Uh, and I introduced President Reagan to microchips. Mm-hmm. And uh, my cousin, Josh Gilder, wrote the Moscow State University speech. And that really began with uh, me showing President Reagan a 64K DRAM <laughs> uh, from Micron Technologies and explaining the capability of semiconductor technology, microchip technology, and how it could enable a really successful strategic defense initiative. Isn't that amazing how much things have changed since the 80s and the talk of SDI and, hey, now we've got Trump uh, talking about a space force, a new division of the military. So it's an amazing world. But George, I can't wait to hear you speak at our upcoming event. It's going to be great. You're going to be talking about the big tech companies, namely Google, how that sort of new relationship with us is changing and how you theorize that Google is now at the height of its power. That's fascinating. I hope you're right about that, by the way, and the information theory of economics. So I can't wait to hear more. And um, and right before that, you have a bunch of meetings and interviews and speeches at Caltech in Pasadena, right? Right. Yeah, good. That's where I come to Newport Beach indirectly from uh, Pasadena and Caltech. Well, we look forward to seeing you in uh, just over a week. Thanks again for joining us at the upcoming Meet the Masters. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for the invitation. It's really exciting to meet the Masters. So we will look forward to seeing all of you at Meet the Masters of Income Property, our 21st anniversary of this event. And by the way, if you uh, tried to book a hotel room, uh, the hotel room block closed, but 
if you talk to your investment counselor, they might be able to get you an exception. I know they were able to do that for one of our attendees just yesterday. So, uh, you know, reach out to your investment counselor for that. The event starts at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. That's when our conference begins. So registration at 8.30. We may open up an early registration on Friday evening. We haven't made the decision on that yet just to um, sort of lessen the strain on Saturday morning. But I think we'll be a little more organized than we were last year on Saturday morning. So it should be fine. Come down, have a cup of coffee, network. We start registration at 8.30 on Saturday morning. And then we go to about 6 p.m. We'll take a break for two hours for dinner, and then we will have our band, and uh, we'll have a concert on a Saturday evening uh, from about 8 to 9.30 or so. And uh, then we got to get you all to bed so you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And on Sunday morning, where we start again at 9 a.m., uh, networking at 8.30 a.m., and we go to about 6. So look forward to seeing you there in Newport Beach. But without further ado, let's get to our 10th episode show and talk about shortcuts to happiness. Join us March 23rd and 24th for the 2019 Meet the Masters of Income property. Let's break this down and look at some of the strengths of income property as an asset class. I found that this event is really helpful because I'm totally a newbie to real estate investment. And so I picked up so much information. One of the great things about it is that it's so fragmented, right? Embrace the fragmentation. Uh, I've actually been learning a lot about the tax benefits to uh, real estate and a lot of, I've been investing actually well over 10 years now and I learned a lot of new things today. The other advantage of this weekend is networking, meeting new property managers, meeting new area specialists, and, and seeing the product they have to offer. That changes year by year. Register now at jasonhartman.com masters. It's my pleasure to welcome Tal Ben-Shahar. He is the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy and Potential Life, the New York Times bestseller of Happier, Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillment, and Choose the Life You Want, 101 Ways to Create Your Own Road to Happiness, and his newest book, Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber. Tal, welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good, it's good to have you on. So here is a subject with talk about broad, wide-ranging appeal, right? <laughs> Who doesn't want to be happier, right? You actually participate in the, I think it's called the Happiness Summit. This is something, I believe, sponsored by the United Nations. And uh, this is where we see all those rankings of the world's happiest countries, right? Yeah, so uh, the United Nations for the past few years has looked into the happiest nations in the world the findings uh, are, are quite interesting. We don't find the countries we expect to be at the top mm -hmm. uh, there. So countries um, that regularly appear at the top are um, Denmark, Norway, and then uh, Colombia and Israel and Costa Rica. And the interesting question is uh, is always why why these countries and not the wealthiest countries in before, the world. Before and I get that I totally get that they're not the wealthiest. Um, but before we address why are these the happiest, I'd like to know how they rate such a thing. I mean, it's a soft subject, right? It is. No, that, that's a very good and important question. Now, if you'd asked me this question thirty years ago, um, I would have had a problems responding. Today, though, we have uh, very good measures of happiness, some of them um, objective measures. We, you know, we look at people's brains, we scan them, we know what a happy brain looks like, we know what a compassionate or a depressed brain uh, looks like. 
while we mostly still today use questionnaires, there is a significant overlap, correlation between or among the different measures, the direct brain measures, uh, other physiological measures, as well as the self-reports. And you're talking about fMRIs, uh, M, you know, functional magnetic resonance yes, imaging, Yes, exactly. Right? MRIs or fMRIs, yeah. uh, PET scans, EEGs, mm -hmm. they can all give us uh, a hint. And you know, what's, what's very important when you do research is to use different methods, whether it's direct brain scans, whether it's self-report, whether it's other people reporting about uh, levels of happiness. Mm -hmm. How do you know what a happy brain is from a scan? How can a scan tell you that? Is it like a questionnaire and then the person gets into the machine and then you scan them and say, okay, this person says they're happy and that's what their brain, how their scan looks. Is that what they do? Yes, you could do that. However, mm -hmm. the way people measure happiness levels is they look at what, what areas of the brain are more active. So for example, we know that people with more activation neural activation, that is, in the left prefrontal cortex, that's just the front side of your, your brain, uh, they tend to be happier. People with more activation on the right they actually tend towards depression. Mm, that's interesting. So, so what is activation? Is, does it just mean keeping oneself busy and engaged in life, or does it mean something else? No, it means that this place is, is working, that the neurons there are firing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just like you have... Uh, you work at something, neurons are also working. They're either on or off. Mm -hmm. And if particular neurons, particular area in the brain are working, well, that means you're happier or less happy or uh, experiencing empathy or, uh, or sadness. Okay, all right, go ahead. So the interesting thing about the finding about national levels of happiness is that there's only one thing that predicts happiness levels on a, on a national level and that is relationships. Mm -hmm. So countries that emphasize, where the, where the people emphasize social connections, uh, real relationships, where they prioritize it, these are the countries that are happiest. And again, these are the, you know, interestingly, uh, in uh, Denmark, 93% of the population are members of social clubs. This could be, uh, this is active members, could be in their church or sailing club or, or Mahjong club. It actually doesn't matter, but they're active members in countries like uh, Israel and Colombia, you know, countries you wouldn't expect people to be happy with all, given the political issues that these countries had to have had to endure. In these countries, friendships and family relationships are, are very important, are central to the ethos. And that's why they're among the happiest countries in the world consistently. In contrast, countries like uh, the United States or um, the UK, Germany, Singapore, Korea are far from being at the top of the ranking because uh, relationships very often are taking a back seat to other pursuits. Yeah, yeah. So are they taking a back seat to capitalism then? Not specifically to capitalism, specifically to success. Uh -huh. And, you know, people don't realize, unfortunately, that it is possible to have the best of both worlds. So to cultivate relationships and to be successful. In, in fact, in the, in the long term, if you do focus on relationships, you will have more fuel, more energy for the road ahead. Right, right. And those relationships also, uh, you know, from maybe a business perspective, represent networking and connections. <laughs> maybe maybe they can turn out to do something for you in your career as well. But uh, yeah. hey, I guess maybe to broach this subject, everybody needs to get rich enough and successful enough to be able to afford to join a country club and then they'll be happy, right? <laughs> um, well, that's one way of looking at it. However, you know, it, 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 you don't need to be... Um, 
um, member of the most expensive country club. Right. Just having a nice dinner at your you know, local diner with friends or at home, that generates just as much of what I've come to call the ultimate currency, which mm-hmm. is the currency of happiness. Sure. Okay. Okay. So actually taking time for connection, drill down on that. Is there, there's got to be more to it, right? It, it's not just about connecting and having relationships. I mean, what else? Yeah. Be, be, before I drill down, if yeah, I can go sure. you know, from national level to, to individual level. Absolutely. So, yeah. Har- Harvard conducted uh, by now a famous study over a period of 75 years where mm-hmm. they followed their graduates as well as community members for 75 years. For most of them, it was their entire life. Mm-hmm. And they collected literally millions of data points. And what they found was that the best predictor of both happiness as well as health, in other words, both mental and physical health, number one predictor, relationships. Now, the interesting thing about this, and this is where we can dig a little bit deeper, the interesting thing was that um, it didn't matter what kind of relationships, meaning for some of them, it was a romantic partner whom they, they spent their uh, life with. For others, it was you know family. For others, it was close friends. For others, it was business relationships. But these relationships were, here is the thing, they were real, they were authentic. Mm-hmm. And this is especially important in today's world. You know, unfortunately, a thousand friends on social media are no substitute for those, you know, one or two intimate, real well, relationships. In, in, in fact, it might be making you less happy because there's all kinds of studies, which I'm sure you are well aware of, uh, that show that people that spend a lot of time on social media develop a lot of very envious traits, and uh, it actually uh, it deepens separation from people, exactly. oddly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort yeah. of a double-edged sword. I mean, it is good, but like anything in life, right, it needs to be kept in its place, uh, I guess. Yes. So Eric Kleinberg, who's uh, at NYU, is a sociologist, has shown that the more time people spend on social media, the lonelier they in fact are. So that's one area, as you point out, that, that, that leads to unhappiness. The second element that you also point to is the social comparison. What do we see on social media? We see everyone being perfectly happy. Right. You know, with perfect job, perfect family, perfect vacation, perfect life. And, and we compare ourselves to it and we fall short of that. And then this uh, upward social comparison we engage in is making us miserable. But doesn't everybody know that? I mean, maybe it hits us at a mm. different level subconsciously yeah. versus consciously, right? Because I always I always like to say, you know, we live in an era where everybody is basically running their own self-styled PR firm. And, <laughs> you know, and it's it's pretty ridiculous. And talk about keeping up with the Joneses. It's, it's worse than ever now. You know, all the things people post, you know, they, they sort of have a positive bent because people don't want to be negative and and heck negative people aren't very attractive right so you know maybe we want to be attractive to each other and and be positive about things right but the person who's looking at their news feed has to know because they they're probably doing it too they don't just think oh everybody else's life is perfect and my life is lousy because i don't post stuff like that i mean you know i don't know you know yes we know it on a on a conscious level however as Freud's metaphor is, you know, the, the conscious is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, fair and enough. the subconscious is not doing that processing that you just went through. Mm, yeah. In other words, what's happening is that that subconscious is thinking everyone is, is having an amazing time and I'm feeling miserable mm-hmm. right now. That, that is the inner implicit conversation going on. And, unfor- you know, it's, it's like, um, 
you know, you, you look at the magazine covers or, you know, yeah. and a, a couple of my students have done research on this and, and self-esteem. And yeah, girls and women know that these are photoshopped images and that there are only, you know, a handful of, you know, supermodels. And yet this is what the subconscious is comparing them to. And it's hurting their self-esteem. Same with social media. Tell us about your barber. What are some of these lessons that you learned from your barber? Yeah, I must say the first lesson that I learned from my barber is that you can learn lessons from your barber. Okay. Uh, you know, so for the past 30 years, I've been an academic. I've delved into academic journals and um, ancient uh, texts and modern research. And here, you know, I went to my barber and, and I realized that I was actually feeling great after um, a haircut and, and great, not just because he made me look better, because he made me feel better. And uh, I started writing a book about him and basically collecting his, his pearls of wisdom over a period of two years. And many of these pearls of wisdom, I then found um, similar ideas in um, Aristotle and Lao Tzu 2,500 years ago or um, Marty Seligman and Sonia Lubomirsky who are doing research in positive psychology today. Talk to us about, uh, for example, the lesson on relationships uh, from your barber. So my barber, again, didn't read the, the Harvard study on relationships or others, and yet he understood that in order to lead a happy life, he needs to, um, to spend quality time uh, with people he cares about. Moreover, when we came into his salon, phones were off. He encouraged us to be engaged with one another, and he didn't need fMRIs to show the impact of social media and social comparison. Mm -hmm. he, he understood it. Mm -hmm. So relationships was one thing. The other thing was um, also, interestingly, silence and the value of silence. So there is um, one of my uh, uh, friends who's, uh, who writes in the area of leadership talks about how silence is the sound of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. It's so important for managers and leaders to spend more time in silence. And it's not something that's done enough because mm -hmm. we feel very uncomfortable. You know, we even have the phrase awkward silence. Mm -hmm. And yet these periods of silence are, are critical for self-development and self-growth. Yeah, I, I love what it, that line from The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Of course, everybody knows the book. He says, uh, you know, you talk when you cease to be at peace with yourself talks about the, the importance of silence. So very, very good point. What else? Uh, maybe another lesson. How about anger? Uh, does anger serve a useful purpose or is it all bad? You know, so anger, first of all, is natural. And um, yes, it has an evolutionary reason and basis. However, most of the time when we get angry, it doesn't serve us. And, you know, it reminds me, one of the stories uh, that I tell in the book about Avi is um, um, happened when uh, I was having my hair cut and, uh, and a woman walked in to have her haircut and she was seething. And uh, Avi, the, the barber, asked her, so, you know, what, what's wrong? And she said, you know, I just got cut off by this idiot and, you know, I can't believe he did that. And she went on and on. And then he says, can I share with you what I, what I do when, when I'm cut off? And she said, sure. And he said, you know, if I'm waiting for a parking spot and the car comes out and I'm about to go in, but then an SUV comes in, cuts me off and takes my spot. What I do then is, and you know, we were waiting uh, for probably, I beat him up or, or something like that because Avi is a strong guy. He says, what I do is that I imagine that a cow just cut me off. 
Would you be you mad know, at the cow, us, right? Yeah, yeah and, and we said, what? And, you know, both of us were, were laughing. And he said, exactly. You know, because if I think of a cow, I start laughing. I don't get angry. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very simple technique that, by the way, I've been using ever since. And it's, it's a technique where he didn't know it, but there is actually research showing that we can't experience two conflicting emotions at the same time. So I can't experience amusement and anger or empathy and hatred at the same time. And then what happens when you think of a cow and you experience amusement, you're no longer angry at it and, and at that person. And it's not worth being angry at the person. And we can use this in a work situation when we're with a, with a client who's upsetting us, or we can use it with our children when they upset us or our partner. So it's a very simple and useful technique. Think of a cow cutting you off. Yeah, okay, right. Well, just the other day last week, a giant, and I mean giant, and forgive me if I get it wrong, but I guess it was an iguana, I don't know, this huge prehistoric looking creature cut me off on the road and I had to wait for it to walk by. And it it was a scary, ugly looking creature. But, you know, I, I took a picture of it and thought, ooh, <laughs> and, uh, and I moved on. I didn't get mad. If that was a person, I might have, I admit, I was, I was in a rush when it happened. And, you know, I'm in Florida, so we have that kind of thing down here. And I would have probably, if nothing else, sort of slapped my hand on the steering wheel. Like, what is this guy doing? You know? Mm. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The cow, the cow is a good one. All right. What else? Maybe another topic area from your barber. Sure. So one of the things that he uh, often would talk about is uh, raising children. And then he would bring it to the level of business as well. And one of those things was praise. Now, it's very important, of course, to praise children. It's important to praise our partners. It's important to praise our employees. And yet, how we praise them is even more important because there's research. Again, he didn't know about this research. He, he does this intuitively. There's research by a Stanford professor, Carol Dweck, on praising. And what she shows is that when we praise children, for example, for how smart they are or how beautiful they are, that's actually unhelpful in the long term. Why? Because if I'm praised for how smart I am, all I have to do is protect my self-image, and then I won't take any risks. And then um, I I will not uh, necessarily try. I will just try to avoid seeming not smart. In contrast, praising for effort, for hard work, that's helpful. It's helpful for children, and it's also helpful for employees. Uh, Because when I'm praised for hard work, I can always work hard. I can always invest. I can always work harder, or usually. And that's helpful. And when I saw him you know, praise his children for their effort rather than for their uh, accomplishments or how beautiful or how smart they are, that was an important reminder of this research by Carol Dweck that can really make, make a difference. But are you praising them for real effort or is it more like the concept of the participation trophy? And you know, I, I got maybe I, maybe I'll play devil's advocate here for a moment, but it almost seems to me like we have in many ways ruined a generation. And I'm talking about the millennials, maybe the Gen Z after them too. Probably every generation thinks this about the one that comes after them to some extent. But we have just catered to these kids. We have made them feel good. We have told them they're great. And, you know, a lot of them just aren't that great, <laughs> okay? They're, they're really not putting forth a lot of effort. There are a lot yeah. of spoiled brats out there who 
do not exert themselves, do not, they're not rigorous with themselves at all. I mean, it's like, does everybody just deserve a compliment all the time? And, you know, an award for just showing up? I mean, you know, that sort of leads to the world owes me a living type of attitude, doesn't it? I couldn't agree more. I think this is is a huge issue. It's a huge issue with young kids. And then obviously, it spills over to the workplace later on when they leave home. Praise has to be, first of all, it has to be real. Mm-hmm. If there was no effort, then obviously don't praise for effort. You know, they asked um, Jack Welch, and I remember reading this article back in 2000 when he was uh, elected as the CEO, the manager of the 20th century. I think it was Fortune magazine. He was asked, you know, what advice do you have for managers? And he said, my advice is learn to face reality. And if parents don't teach their children to face reality, then they're setting them up for, for failure. Failure in the um, conventional sense, also failure, emotional failure in the ultimate currency. Parents' role is to be a mirror, to reflect reality for, for the children. So absolutely, first of all, based on reality. Then if there was effort and success, focus on the effort. Right. Okay. Okay. So I guess maybe the key to that is whether it be your your friend, your partner, your kids, uh, employee, whatever, you know, be sensitive enough to find the areas and maybe it takes some effort, right? Where they really are making an effort and then make the praise real. But don't just arbitrarily do it because, you know, in a sense, that's lazy on our part, isn't it? when we're just sort of arbitrarily saying, oh, you're making such a great effort when they're really not, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's lazy. And it's also, you know, it's the easy way out because, you know, kids enjoy it, certainly in the short term when they're told they're good. But in the long term, we're really hurting them. And I see it so often. I see it with my students. I see it with also um, the young working adults. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about a, a couple more questions here just before we wrap it up. Is happiness a currency? Yes. It is the currency by which we take measure of our life, whether we do it consciously or not. You know, if you ask someone, if you give someone a a billion dollars, but a billion dollars, um, and these are uh, Martian dollars Mm -hmm. that you will never be able to actually use, then it's worthless. Mm -hmm. However, in the same way, money is only worth if it can be translated into happiness. If I, if I told you, I will give you a billion dollars now, but then you're guaranteed misery for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually believe me that that's true, you won't take those billion dollars mm-hmm. because ultimately what you want is happiness. So the reason we want money is because we truly believe that it will make us happy, again, beyond survival needs, mm-hmm. of course. Right. And that's why I call happiness the ultimate currency, because it's the currency by which we ultimately take measure of our lives. Every Mm -hmm. other currency we translate explicitly or implicitly to the currency of happiness. Yeah. So I think people get very off track and confused there when they think somehow pursuit of money to any degree at all will make you unhappy. And that's just such a silly idea. You know, they use these few examples they've heard, well, money doesn't buy happiness. Well, neither does poverty, right? But there is a prudent middle ground in there somewhere, isn't there? Because you don't want to be a slave to anything. You know, money should not be the master. That's right. So basic needs are are critical for happiness. You know, we talked earlier about national levels happiness. Countries that, that are poor 
contrary to what many people think, they're actually in general very unhappy. There are people um, who have no money and then you give them an extra you know, $1,000 a month, money will make them happier for sure. However, beyond basic needs, additional money does not make us happier. Right. Yeah. What else should people know before you go? Just any question I haven't asked you? Perhaps the, the first step to happiness is allowing in unhappiness. So there's a common misconception today um, that the happy life is a life devoid of painful emotions, when in fact painful emotions, sadness, anger, envy, disappointment, frustration, anxiety, these are all natural human emotions. We all experience them. The question is what we do when we experience them. One thing we can do is reject them and chastise ourselves for experiencing them, and then they only intensify, they only grow stronger. In contrast, if we accept them, embrace them as a part and parcel of our life, of, of any life, in fact, then they don't overstay their welcome. So it's when we allow in unhappiness, embrace painful emotions as natural, give ourselves the permission to be human, that's when we open ourselves up for pleasure. And in fact, Khalil Gibran, whom you quoted earlier, talks exactly talks about, about that. that. You, were, you were making me think of it, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the deeper the, uh, you know, you carve the into the being, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and say that. I can't remember it, but I, I do remember. Yeah, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's yeah. the deeper the, the sorrow, the more open you are, the more you can accept and take in. Yeah. the joy in life. I always found that interesting that the more hardship one endures and you know you don't want to intentionally go out and endure hardship obviously right but if you don't have uh you know some of that in your life you just don't have a reference point to appreciate when it's good do you? The point also is that you learn a lot when you experience hardship. One of my uh, ex-colleagues M Arbison Mm -hmm. uh, said the following. She said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, R Rahm Emanuel said that too in a political way and people didn't like it too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right. And we learn and grow from hardship. Clay Christensen talks about how the, the best leaders are the ones who, who do experience hardships and difficulties earlier on in life. There's actually a, a strong correlation between failure, difficulties, hardships, and ultimate success. One of the sound bites that I repeat to my students and to my children as well as to my clients is learn to fail or fail to learn. Mm -hmm. There is no other way. That's how we learn how to walk. That's how we learn how to eat. That's how we learn to be in a healthy relationship. And that's how we learn to manage. I couldn't agree more. That's excellent. And, uh, you know, Seneca said one must wait until evening to see how splendid the day has been. So having that point of comparison, I mean, we're just full of quotes today, aren't we? <laughs> having that point of comparison is, is very important. Give out your website and uh, wrap it up for us. Yes. So uh, my website is uh, Tal Ben Shahar. That's T-A-L-B-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-R.com. And, and there you can find uh, links to my books on leadership, on happiness, as well as uh, links to my online classes. Fantastic. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.